Our New Testament reading comes from Romans 4, 13 through 25. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on the right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law also always brings punishment on those who try to obey. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. And if we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses. If we have faith like Abraham, for Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happens because Abraham believed in God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there is no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had asked to him, that's how many descendants you have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was for the record for our, our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sin, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Please bow with me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the rains that you've sent us, and we thank you for the rains that you will send us. We ask that you be with each one of us as we listen to Ryan's sermon today, that we not become a warehouse of information, that we take that information and we spread it throughout the world. I pray safety and blessings on all that are here and then all that listen. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. Well, I want to tell you a story from the 24th of May, 1738 in London, England, uh, just recently on May 24th, 2023, uh, we celebrated this day, or this day is celebrated all throughout Christendom, all over the world, uh, as Aldersgate Day. 
And so if you saw that on your news feed or anything, the reason we celebrate Aldersgate Day on May 24th is because on May 24th in 1738, something very special happened. Something special happened in the life of John Wesley, who is not only the founder of Methodism as we know it, but was also a catalyst for really Protestantism as we know it uh, throughout the Western world for the last 300 years or so. So to set this day up, all right, John Wesley's in London on a Wednesday night, and he's about 35 years old. He's got his whole life ahead of him, but he's had a very frustrating several years. Uh, he's just returned in February from the great United States. He went as a missionary to Georgia with the mission uh, of you know, converting people who were native peoples and all sorts of peoples who were all the wild things that were going on in Georgia in 1738 or 1736. And he spent a lot of time there with his brother Charles, a lot of comings and goings. And by all reports and by all statistics, that missionary journey was a complete failure. They, they didn't accomplish anything they set out to accomplish. No one responded favorably, favorably to the gospel. There were no churches started. Uh, nothing happened that they could see with their eyes. It was a total failure. And so John Wesley's coming back from America to England, and he's just totally dejected. He's down on his faith. He's struggling. He's wondering if he even trusts God at all. Uh, he wonders if God loves him, and he's having a really hard time. He encounters this group of folks who are traveling on the same ship called the Moravians. And they genuinely, they changed John Wesley's life by their faith. When there are storms, literal storms on the ship, and Wesley's like scared to death, and he's afraid if he dies, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. And the Moravians in the middle of the storm, they're singing hymns, you know, and they're just, they're just going on about their business. And John Wesley was so moved by that that it prompted conversations with Peter Moeller, who was one of the leading Moravians at the time. And, and so this is going on in Wesley's life. And here's the account we get from his journal. This is his personal journal on that Wednesday night. And he wrote, In the evening, I went very unwillingly. Does everyone, anyone ever go unwillingly to a Bible study or a church service or anything? Yeah, we've all, we've all been there. To a church camp, to counsel a church camp. I went very unwillingly to a society, which is kind of like a night Sunday school in Aldersgate Street, where someone was reading Martin Luther's preface to the Romans. They ain't even got to the scripture reading yet. They're just reading Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans. And while the guy is up here reading, like Ken was reading for us before, he said about a quarter before nine o'clock, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I, John Wesley, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And I had an assurance that was given to me that Jesus had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. It's one of the most famous written accounts of what we might referred to by several names. Uh, some people might call it the evangelical moment. Some people might say uh, a time where you were filled in a special way with the Holy Spirit. Some people might call it my conversion experience. Some people might call it my second conversion experience, my coming home to Jesus experience. There's a lot of different things we could call it. But this is a faith crisis. This is what Karl Barth called 
a crisis of Christ, where you move from darkness to light, you move from death to life, you move from guilt to forgiveness, and it seems like it all happens in a flash, just in the moment. And I, I was feeling guilty, and I was feeling free. It happens just like that. I was feeling as though there was no hope for me, and all of a sudden, boom, there's hope. A crisis of Jesus. <clears throat> so Romans 4, 16, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace, this is why it's so important, that the promise that we stand to inherit as Abraham's children does not rest on our accomplishments, it does not rest on our ability to articulate what we believe perfectly, it rests on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, including us, the ones who share in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. There's never a truer thing than we say or sing in VBS than Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. We get our arms going, and, that, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right? That's our inheritance. Abraham is our grandfather, our uncle, or whatever you want to call him, in the faith. So this crisis of Jesus, this moment in life, or this moment in time where we, we are transported from chronological time to God's time, to salvation time, and, and sometimes it feels as though time has stopped. Time is just paused for a moment, and we see things we never saw before. We feel things we never felt before, and we begin to believe things in a deep way that we never believed before. This is the gift of faith. So much in the book of Romans, so much of the New Testament is highlighting and celebrating the gift of faith. The beautiful thing about the gift of faith is there's not a darn thing that you and I can do to ignite that in our own heart, in our own soul. We don't create faith in our own lives any more than we can create the sun coming up in the morning. Uh, only if God plants that seed and, and wakes us up and draws us into his presence, only if Jesus takes the first step on the dance floor, only then can we wake up and connect our part, our response to God's miracle. That's how faith works. That's how it happens. That's how it starts. There's the spark. The match is lit, and then we, our eyes are open, and we step into the light. And that's how what we call conversion, the gift of faith, our response to God's miracle. It's God's miracle plus our desire for something good. And one of the beautiful things about human beings is that we were all created with this innate desire to want what is good, to want what is good and right and true. And yes, we're marred by the effects of sin in the world and by our inborn sin, original sin, but we desire what is good. It's the most natural, beautiful thing of human beings. Uh, Joseph Pieper, the 1960s German philosopher uh, who wrote uh, such wonderful theological arguments against what was happening in the church in his day when Hitler was rising to power and trying to bring the church along with him, uh, Joseph Pieper really stuck his neck out and wrote some beautiful treatises. And one that he wrote, one of the first ones that he wrote in 1934 was called On Faith. And he talks about in that treatise on faith, he says, you know, we don't believe because we all of a sudden can see or because we can figure something out that something is true. We don't figure it out first and then believe in it. He said, we believe something because we desire something good. We're, we're moved over the, the chasm of faith. We begin to believe something because we desire something good. 
You know, it's not just about doing the right thing. It's not just about finding what is true and latching onto it. These are great things that we do. But it all starts with us desiring something good. You know, so many times we make Christianity about something besides uh, desire. And God is very much connected to our desire because he created us. So uh, our faith should never be disconnected from that. We desire something good. And so we are drawn into the room of belief. There is an element of unrest that is necessary for true belief. For genuine belief, there has to be a little bit of unsettling because we have to want what is good. We want something better than what we have, and so we're looking for it, and that propels us on. Abram was looking for a better country. Even though he'd never been there, he had no idea what was going to happen, his life was going really, really well for him. He had, I mean, he had all kinds of stuff. He had everything he ever wanted. He had the equivalent of the American dream on steroids. He had everything, and he was willing to leave all of that and move his family somewhere because he knew God was calling him to be a part of a bigger story, to be a part of something greater. And so he left. This is the hinge pin of Christianity, the gift of faith, which we connect to with our desire for something good. So uh, today and over the next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to do a little three-part series on uh, what uh, classically are called the, the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. So today will be faith, next week hope, and then the following week will be love. Uh, and so we're going to talk about the theological virtues, theological, and they're grouped that way. You know, there are other virtues uh, which uh, we believe that you can have, that anyone can have. So for example, anyone can have, can possess fortitude. Anybody can possess temperance. People can do unbelievable things uh, just basic human capacity, as we know, is unreal. I mean, the things that people come up with, the things that people are able to do and withstand, and we talk about it all the time when, when countries are in the midst of war and the amount of resilience that you see in people, there are things that we can do just as human beings that are truly unbelievable. But no one can have faith, no one can have hope, and no one can have a genuine love like we're going to talk about. No one can have that except by the miracle of God. No one can do enough, be enough on their own to have faith, hope, and love. So that's why they're called the theological virtues. They depend on God. And so we're going to talk about how we receive those as a gift, but then ultimately how those either grow inside of us and make us bigger or how they shrink inside of us and make us smaller. Uh, that's how faith, that's how hope, and that's how love works. So that's what we're going to talk about uh, the next couple of weeks. So faith... Uh, as that moment, as that crisis moment, we receive and we respond to. But then faith we carry with us for the rest of our lives, and it's either growing or it's shrinking. It's weakening in our mind and in our soul. Um, Bart, Carl Bart says that uh, Abram or Abraham steps where his only support, this is great, where his only support is the Word of God. Abram steps where his only support is the word of God. So the only thing that he's standing on when he puts his full weight out there and all the weight of his family and all his camels and everything else is the word of God, which told him to go. And I love that image because, I mean, you've all been across a stream or you've crossed a bridge or you've had something where every step was very important. It's like this rock, if it's stable, I make it across the creek. If it's not stable, I'm swimming in the creek. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm gone down the creek, right? So I have to trust. And so my only thing that I'm counting on is just a great visual of, uh, of, of the word of God being the one thing that we're holding on to. Um, 
I was visiting my brother last week and uh, was horseback and I'm never horseback anymore. So uh, I was very sore the next day. Um, but I was also reminded of that liminal moment, that moment. And some of you know this moment where you're, you're, you put all of your weight in the stirrups and you lean your weight forward and you raise your hand and you're, you're going to throw your rope and you, you extend everything. And there's a moment where when your arm's fully extended and you're standing up on the balls of your feet and your feet are back where the 1200 pound horse has you and he can do anything he wants. He can make your life really wonderful or really bad in that moment. And there's really nothing you can do about it if it's at that perfect moment. But everything is depending on where you're putting your weight. Another great image of just how, how that moment in time can just feel so, can make us feel so vulnerable. But it's the pathway to get where we really have to go. So our faith grows or our faith weakens. Uh, Romans 4.19, Abraham did not weaken in faith. When he considered the circumstances, you know, that he was old, that Sarah was barren. Uh, he did not let unbelief weaken him. Uh, and so the implication, of course, that faith can be weakened. Abram did not do that. And verse 20 says, no unbelief caused him to waver concerning the promise of God, but instead he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that God was able to make good on his promise. So even though he couldn't see it, it's like he's stepping out in the creek and he can't see the rock, but he knows it's there. It's that bedrock image. And so he trusted that God was able to make good on his promise. So he went ahead and put his weight all the way out there. When I think of faith growing. I think of a song that we've all sung together. It's a song I used to sing to my kids when they were little, when I was putting them to sleep. Uh, and it was most often, it was Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, you know, how I've proved him over and over. And in other words, how my life and my risks of faith have been proven, not by my effort, but in this cooperation and how God was able to prove his faithfulness to me once and then twice and then 524 times. And each time faith grows, how I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Oh, for grace to grow in faith just a little bit more. That is why faith, in verse 23, was counted to Abraham as righteousness. The words that was counted for him were not written for his sake alone, thank goodness, but they were written for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in the one that raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification, that we might be made right with God. Faith, as we grow, it, make, it results in a credit to our account, the substance of things to come. The life of the resurrected Lord is in our account. It's growing inside of us. If we don't have faith, if we have not faith, then we get a debit in our account. There is no substance or less substance. It's shrinking, and we miss out on the participation in the passion and the resurrection of Jesus. So I want to end by telling a little bit more of the backstory of Aldersgate Day. This is an unbelievable detail. For those of you that have been laboring in this work for a long time, you'll really appreciate this. Anyone who's ever prayed for something fervently, uh, just with everything, just saying that my life depends on this being true. Um, so this wonderful day that we celebrate happened on a Wednesday on May 24th. Well, during the entire month of May, Charles Wesley, who'd been over in Georgia too, came back a little early, he was very, very sick. 
He was so sick that he thought he was going to die. And so he had made his preparations and he had written in his journal, you know, I'm at peace with the Lord. I'm ready. I'm ready to go and meet my maker. Uh, if I don't recover from this illness, I just want to make sure that I know that I belong to Jesus. He was looking for that moment, just some reassurance that he belonged to the Lord. I and mean, this guy had been trained at Oxford. He was a theologian. Uh, but in his 30s, he's just like, man, I just need some reassurance that Jesus loves me, you know. And so he's holding on to that. He's looking for that. And people would come visit and they would pray for Charles to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. So Pentecost Sunday that year was on May 21st. And on May 21st, Charles got visits from friends and from his brother and from his doctor, his physician. And Charles recorded in his journal that he experienced a strange palpitation in his heart. He experienced something that caused him to exclaim out loud, I believe, I believe. And so he wrote, he wrote this down for us to read. He journaled that he was at peace with God uh, and he was rejoicing in the hope of loving Jesus. So he's putting all his weight on this. And so... When his brother John came to visit him the next day, discouraged John comes in on a Monday, on the 22nd of May, Charles, who's in his sickbed, prays for his brother to experience the Holy Spirit in the same way that he did. He says, I just want John to know that love too. And so he prays for him to have a similar experience, the assurance of peace, Christ's love. And isn't it amazing? I mean, we don't predict the times that God's going to show up in these ways. Um, the, the times that God will act. We just prepare ourselves and avail ourselves to the means of grace and Holy Communion and hearing Scripture and being together. And so on Wednesday, John Wesley shows up at this society and the very thing that Charles prayed for happens in his life. And his life was never the same after that. And our lives are not the same because of that moment. So, I mean, you can trace it back to a brother's prayer. Uh, what a beautiful, beautiful thing. And you know... Sometimes when we're growing in our faith, sometimes these are the times where, strangely, it seems like God is the furthest away. Sometimes when we're really taking strides in our faith, it seems like, ironically, that God is distant, that God has forgotten about us. And uh, it's wonderful to have these moments along the way where we can kind of hang our hat and go, man, that was the day that I remembered that I was not alone in my struggle. That was the day I remembered that Jesus loved me, not because of what I had accomplished, but because of his character and who he was. So I just want to invite you this morning to kind of locate yourself on the trail map of faith and uh, marvel at where you've been, wonder at where you might go. Locate yourself there and then ponder what might be the next step of faith in your life. Uh, maybe it's something that you need to step out on. And maybe it's something you would like to pray for someone else. Maybe there's someone in your life that you would like to pray for another person to be able to take that risk to know the deep, uh, profound joy that comes with knowing the love of God. Uh, I was thinking of these siblings praying for each other, and I couldn't not mention, uh, I'm looking at Ryan and Jamie Dove over here and our family. Uh, we, we both have siblings traveling together to New Orleans with our youth mission trip. And so I'm just thinking of, of of our, our, our kids' siblings, uh, Ryan and Jamie's, um, and then we've got another family group with a father and a daughter. And uh, I just wonder what God might be doing in, in their hearts. I wonder if they might be praying for one another. And I wonder as we pray for them, as we pray for each other, uh, what kind of faith might be welling up inside of us and inside of them uh, for our joy and our benefit and for the glory of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
Amen.